0: What does motion sound like? With Kizikans Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizikcom socks. The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Americans We're Discussing before you listen to the podcast. New episodes of the show air Wednesdays at 10pm on FX.
1: He does believe thoroughly, 100%, that he is doing it for the greater good and also for the future now. It's not just the future of the country, and the future of his own, but also the future of the little boy and his family. So even if he doesn't come back, what he's asked to do and what he believes is the right thing to do is for the better of his family and the future of the country in which that boy is going to grow up in.
0: Welcome to the Americans podcast for the sixth and final season. I'm June Thomas, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, and your host for the series, which goes behind the scenes of the show. Later, I'll chat with actor Costa Ronin, who plays Oleg Buroff, about his season six beard and other important matters, and with spycraft expert H. Keith Melton about the espionage techniques and technology on display this season. But first, let's hear from showrunners Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields about episode 604, Mr. and Mrs. Teacup. Today, I'm in Gorbachev-loving Gowanus with Joe Weisberg. Hi, Joe. Uh, Hey, June. And Joel Fields. Hello, Joel. Hi, June Thomas. I was very charmed by the conversation between Philip and Oleg, two people who sort of know each other well, but also don't know each other at all. What were you looking for in that conversation, which was written by the great Peter Ackerman, I should add?
2: I like your description of you know them knowing each other well. They don't know each other at all. It's closer to they no, don't know each other at all. But on the other hand, there's a sort of a kind of crazy connection or bond between them, or this need that you find in espionage sometimes for two people to forge a kind of very bizarre kind of closeness or connection that doesn't come from a past together. It comes from being thrown into this very odd, strange situation together. In this case, the situation they're in together is having a mutual understanding of what it might mean to try to save their country. Mm. But on the other hand, it also means being jointly involved in an understanding of what it might mean to be betraying one of their wives well you you just won't find that you just won't find that situation out in the world very often between two men it's just unusual yeah. and, and it creates for a very interesting dynamic and i think what we're interested in is exploring that dynamic and seeing what it creates what it creates is a very unusual feeling a very interesting
0: feeling Oleg and his father igor have a very interesting conversation, which we now know was the answer to how Oleg could get a message to the pro-Gorbachev elements of the KGB without the anti-Gorbachev elements knowing about it. Something you just thought up? The kind of thing that did happen? We
2: made that one up, but I'm not sure things like that didn't happen. If we made it up, probably somebody else thought of it too.
0: Right. (laughs) Good point. I wasn't sure quite what was going on with Norm and the Dremel. Can you explain that to me?
3: Yes. Thank you for calling it a Dremel. That's wonderful. (laughs) He's simply using that tool to open a locked electrical box so that he can access the switch that turns off the electricity.
2: I see. I see. I remember Peter Ackerman coming to us and saying, okay, there's a thing called a Dremel tool.
3: (laughs) And we were like, great, whatever it is, that's fantastic. By the way, that, that is something that I think lived very prominently in the script that I don't think either exists in the cut or is really noticeable in the cut. really? But, and I think a lot of time was spent with it on set, getting the Dremel right, getting the right Dremel. (laughs) And it's sort of fun to say Dremel. On some level, we think that obsession with the specifics, even when it doesn't wind up on screen, somehow it just accrues to the verisimilitude of the show.
0: Once again, Elizabeth's escape from the warehouse is really touch and go. She's had close escapes before many times, including in this season, but it's getting to be hard to handle and other burned hand jokes. Clearly the tension is building. I mean, you're really messing with this now because Elizabeth is just really getting out by the skin of her teeth or by her fingernails slightly singed every single week now.
3: I think that's right. And it's really not about escalating tension towards the end of the Series, But rather it's about what happens to Elizabeth when she's working on her own and when the stakes get high and everything she's been working toward seems to be on the line. There's this huge summit coming. There are secret issues happening back home that only she's read in on. And for all these years, she had a partnership that she could rely on and a partner whom she could share some things with and bounce ideas off of, and frankly would probably check her and protect her in that situation, maybe hold her back a bit. But we're seeing the strain of all of that on her, and we'll see how that strain comes back on the relationship too.
0: You know, it's interesting that you kind of resist talking about the end of the season, and I understand that for you, I'm sure, and for these characters, they can't evince any recognition that, oh, there's only six more episodes or whatever. (laughs) But you have to be aware that the viewer is very conscious of it. And and
3: it's really funny that you say that because we, I think completely blocked it out of our head in the process for that same reason. We just wrote the story as it unfolded. I think in a way we were surprised, even though we knew exactly (laughs) what the end was, we were surprised when it came time to write those scripts. And the first kind of conscious experience I had with that was with my wife because I, I, tend to rewatch all the episodes a night or two before they go to the network and do kind of a final series of notes at home. So I, I share Mm -hmm. that with my wife and after episode six, which we watched recently, she turned to me and said, how many are left? (laughs) (laughs) And that was the first time I realized, Oh, people are, people are going to experience it that way. Yeah. By the way, if we
2: can go back to that warehouse scene for one second in our minds, that's like the darkest scene, like vi- visually mm-hmm. darkest mm-hmm. scene anyone's ever done on television. But nobody's even mentioning it, making us slightly worried that we just need new glasses or something. <laughs> maybe you, we need you, to make it darker. Maybe we need to make it darker. <laughs> we, we feel it's like barely even visible. Everybody should be maybe complaining it's too dark or saying, oh, how great that it's so dark. Could you at least ask us like, oh, my God, that scene was so dark dark well why do you want it to be so dark oh thank you for asking because it was dark there it would be so dark she shoots the lights out we wanted to push the bounds of how dark of a scene you could do
0: wow okay (laughs) elizabeth also lies to marilyn about julie aka page in a way that seems dangerous to the operation page can't go anywhere near stan we know and by lying about the reason that they can't use Julie slash Page, Elizabeth kind of underrepresents the danger that Julie slash Page represents. Do you think there would have been other occasions if it hadn't been for the whole like she's my daughter business that Elizabeth would have lied or just wholly misrepresented things to other key members of her team?
3: I think for Elizabeth, lying is just a tool. I mean, I don't think it's something she thinks twice about she thinks about being effective in her job. And I I don't think she has one wit of consideration of lying to Marilyn or anyone else when it comes to getting the job done. That's just a fact of what it means to be Elizabeth Jennings. And that I don't think says anything at all about how much she cares or doesn't care about Marilyn. It Mm. just says something about how Elizabeth gets things
2: done. That being said, things have to get done, and they have to get done effectively. And I think Paige is a little bit on thin ice. Yeah, yeah. You know, she'll, she'll lie to Marilyn as long as she still believes in what she's saying. But if Paige can't hack it, she will be fired like anybody else eventually.
3: Mm. Yeah, but of course, what she says to Marilyn there has nothing to do about Paige's abilities. It just has to do with, as you said, the fact that Paige can't go anywhere near yeah. Stan Beeman. Yeah. So don't use her on this one.
0: There's a lot of cross-cutting at the end, Elizabeth and the Haskers going to the World Series party, Philip bonding over two-stepping, Paige making out with Brian. That's something, it's a technique that's been relatively little used in the Americans, I think, even though it's kind of a classic spy trope, um, which I know you avoid. But I feel like you bring it out for big events. What's your response to my saying that?
3: Well, I don't think it's just a spy trope. It feels like a television trope. I mean, it's used a lot. We've tried not to use it too much, but it, it seemed like here we were four episodes in And you have these three characters who are part of a family, but their lives have diverged at this point. And yet they're all so interconnected. Mm -hmm. So that sequence just seemed very natural to us.
2: To me, the the danger zone of it is if the stories you're intercutting like that, if they kind of reference each other in too heavy-handed a way— then it seems like you're trying too hard. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to put your finger on what makes it cross that line. And we found sometimes, because you often have an option, you can often do it or not do it right. in those same places. And sometimes we find you just have
3: to try it and see if it feels good or doesn't. It was interesting. It was a very challenging sequence to edit. It took a while for it to get visually right. And I think a lot of that had to do for us with the cadence of it and the build of it and kind of increasing the pace and then finding a place for that pace to slow. And then finding the right song and and figuring out a way to to edit that.
1: The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So, set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting
0: out of hand. And now, a conversation with Costa Ronin, who plays Oleg Burov. Costa today, like Oleg, is wearing a beard. Yes. And my first words were, oh, it's real. Is the beard its own character? Does it have its own, like, does it require green M&Ms? Tell me about the beard.
1: I actually shaved last night. This is all just this morning. <laughs> um, but okay. it definitely is its own character. It definitely has a life of its own. Do and you
0: like ha- acting with the beard?
1: Absolutely not. <clears throat> I mean, look, it's kind of a little bit two-sided because on one side I, I love it because it adds a certain dimension to the character, a dimension we can explore that we could not explore in the previous seasons because of the kind of work that he does and because of where he is in his life personally and professionally. And it also, you know, people who wear facial hair usually have something to hide. That's kind of where it psychologically comes from, uh, which steps in very well into where all it is today. But personally, you know, the beard for me started out when I, in hiatus, go traveling somewhere and I just don't shave and I have this whole safari worldly kind of a tired uh, explorer look and feel. And then I never, ever did I think that it will ever become a part of the character. But here we go. It is a part of the character now and I cannot wait for, <laughs> for, for, it, to be, uh, for it to be gone. So it's uh, been a journey. It's been, let's, let's just say we, we've, we've tried becoming friends with the beard and we've failed.
0: Oleg has changed tremendously over the three years since uh, the end of season five. He got out of the KGB. He's no longer living and sleeping in that single bed in his parents' apartment with his kind of feet hanging over the end. Talk me through those changes.
1: He is married now. They met at the dinner, which was set up, as we remember, by uh, Oleg's parents. The dinner itself, as we remember, didn't go down all that well because of everything that was going well in, in his life at that time. But Elena and him, they do have, they did have a history and they, of course, developed their relationship and got married and they've got a beautiful one-year-old son. And uh, there was so much fun to film that with uh, Lianca and uh, with the twins, because we always get the twins. The previous three years were very... Interesting, but very difficult for him at the same time as well, because he would have had to have a conversation with her saying, look, there is life before you and life since I met you this time, since we were connected and started a family. So let's never talk about my life before you. Let's just start from scratch, a clean slate, and try to build a life together. And that was also his way of escaping his demons from the past and trying to get away from the life back in the States from the experiences with the Residentura and the relationship with Stan and Nina and Arkady and, and um, Tatiana okay. and everybody. So that was the plan. And of course, as we see in episode one of season six, that uh, changes.
0: It changes and it seems at least that he makes that decision very quickly. Does that mean that he wasn't really happy with being husband and father? Was he craving the thrill of intelligence work?
1: Um, He was happy in this life. But at the same time, it's not something you can get out of a person. Once you are uh, an agent, once you are a spy, once you you have gone down that rabbit hole of that career path, I don't believe you can ever stop. Uh, I mean, you can call yourself whatever you want. You can introduce yourself as whoever you want. But at the same time, it's in your eyes, it's in your soul, it's in your heart. And you may try to forget it as all you want. It's just not going to happen.
0: But he also kind of betrays his family. His family needs him and he takes off and he he puts himself in danger. Or or don't you see it that way?
1: I absolutely do not see it that way. He does not betray his family. Everything that Oleg has ever done was for for, in his eyes, the greater good... And, and was really quite selfless. That that's at least how he saw it. Um, and even now, when he has to make the decision to uh, leave the family, he's not thinking that he's leaving the family forever, even though there is this inkling deep inside that he may never see them again, purely because he knows what's waiting for him out there. And um, it's one of those things where in that line of work, you never know when you can come back. And also in that line of work, when you're out there, the, you know, a, a directive from center can come in and say, we need you to do this next, and this next, and this next, and next thing you know, you're away for six years. And there is absolutely nothing you can do. So he does go away after the meeting with Arkady, but he does believe thoroughly, 100%, uh, that he's doing it for the greater good and also for the future now. It's not just the future of the country and the future of his own, but also the future of the little boy, and his family so even if he doesn't come back, what he's asked to do and what he believes is the right thing to do is for the better of his family and the future in which the future of the country in which that boy is going to grow up in
0: do you think that Oleg was always such a quite not sure what the word is an idealist
1: absolutely I mean that wasn't just a blind idealism where he did things without having an understanding of how things are done. He had a very good understanding of how how things are done, and he was able to manipulate the system very well and manipulate the workplace and and personal relationship and build relationships with the higher-ups and uh, climb that political ladder. So he knew how the system works, but he didn't believe that that was the right way. And he knew that there was something definitely rotten with the way the system is or was at that stage. And he definitely wanted to be a part of something bigger than that and a part of a change. You know how they say, if you are born into the world that feels wrong to you, it's because you are born to help create a better one. And that is his motto in life. This is how he felt very strongly and very passionate about it. He did believe all through the time we saw him over the last six years and before that, when we didn't see him, that was something he thoroughly believed in. That was his mission in life. He was there to help create a better world for the country, for the world. And if we cast our mind back to season two, three, when we were kind of learning about him, he understood that even though he worked for the Russian government, for KGB, there's got to be a better way. And it wasn't about Soviet Union, about, it wasn't about the United States. It was about the world in general. Because if if during the time of that arms race, if any of those countries, if any of those those leaders would have pressed the red button, there would be no winners. Everybody would have lost. There would be no world, like you and I would not be sitting here right now. So, and that is something he very clearly understood. That is definitely, you know, one of his demons that kind of followed him
0: all his life. Right, he already had that whole experience with Stan in what season 4 that had its repercussions in season 5 about him you know, telling this very deep secret but not because he was betraying the Soviet Union but because he wanted the world to keep turning.
1: Absolutely, and he also recognized in Stan a similar soul. He understood that Stan is not just a robotic operator uh, who sees the world as black and white. He understood that Stan understands that the world is gray and there is a better way of, of, of dealing with this confrontation between the two countries, between the two sort of eastern and western camps. And as we know from our research and from talking to people who were actually at the, uh, in the field in those days, those relationships were very, very common. We know that KGBN and FBI and CIA agents they would get together every Saturday, Sunday and play tennis and soccer and have a drink at the bar but they had that mutual respect for one another to never talk about work that mutual respect between human beings still existed and that's something that fueled the relationship between oleg and stan
0: in episode one of this season oleg meets philip Mm -hmm. and i know that you're someone who does a lot of research and i just wondered how you would think um a man like oleg would view a man like Philip as a hero or as a threat to progress in the Soviet Union or, or something else?
1: Here's the thing. People like Philip and Elizabeth, imagine uh, you know, uh, uh, people stuck on an island with complete information isolation. They basically, their understanding, their memories of the Soviet Union is what it was when they left. And it's frozen in time. So when they were in their twenties and their teens, and that that sort of that propaganda was drilled into them, that's what stayed with them. So in their minds, it's like that, like the way it was. They don't know about the recent changes. They don't know who the hell Gorbachev is. They don't know what he wants to do. Oleg understands that. All this information is coming from arkady and his father and also living in moscow and in soviet union in those days but he also understands that he has to take this very slowly with philip because at the end of the day he knows that they cannot be just meeting every day and and you know it's not like A Q&A where he's just like oh so you have another question sure let's hang out have a beer and, and like i'll answer your questions no it's not like that it's like they've got that limited amount of time of a minute or two when he has to make sure that Philip understands what's happening, what the consequences are, and what the consequences are if he doesn't go through with this. He needs, he needs to bring Philip on board, and, and, and not because like they kind of work for the same organization, but because he needs Philip to understand that the rest of the world has changed. And the perception that him and, and Elizabeth have of the Soviet Union, of the uh, United States, and of the rest of the world has also changed. And they cannot continue to live in, on, that, on that island. This is like an infuse of, of new information mm-hmm. into their world. Mm-hmm.
0: We learn that Oleg's father, Igor, is kind of on the same page as he is. Mm-hmm. And we know that Oleg's been working with his father in the transportation uh, ministry. ministry yeah. But I was surprised a little bit to learn that they are of the same opinion of change and of what needs to happen in the Soviet Union. Were you at all? His father is a apparatchik. His father has been a member of the establishment. He knows that his son was in the KGB. He kn- His father seems to have known a lot for a long time. So I'm surprised that suddenly he would break.
1: Sure. But at the same time, his father is also, even though he's an apparatchik, it wasn't really... Uh, apparatchiks are different. There's a lot that you cannot talk about. There's a lot that you cannot say, but it doesn't mean you cannot think it. Oleg wouldn't necessarily turn out the way he was if his father wouldn't have the same dna you know you got you got to understand like the, the generation of his father the generation who won the war is the generation who rebuilt and continued to rebuild the soviet union and they they meant well for the country sure like right now we look at the hindsight and we're like well you know there's a lot of things you guys did wrong but in those days if you know you look at the that generation all around the world they were rebuilding the world. They were rebuilding Europe. They were rebuilding the UK, America after the war. There was a huge shortage of everything, including people. A lot of men died.
0: Especially in the Soviet Union.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so those people, they continue to live in that sort of frame of mind of this is, you know, we are building socialism and we are building the greater future. But at the same time, greater future was a bigger concept than socialism. And do not think that those people did not constantly question themselves, what is that greater future? Sure, it's not explored, it's not talked about, but they did ask those questions. Surely they didn't discuss it as openly as we right now. I mean, you turn on the television right now, and that's all we talk about. But in those days, people didn't talk about it because you, know, you didn't know who was listening and who is kind of working for who, but they did think about it. And I did question it. In the three years that we did not uh, see our characters, there would have been a lot of that, a lot of a relationship. There would have been a conversation between Igor and Oleg about, okay, so what do you want to do next? Are you sure you want to get out of the KGB? Because once you're in the KGB, you can't get out. It's not like you can like, well, you know, I'm. Here's my resignation. No, that's it. It's like once you're in the system, you're in the system, which is Something that hasn 't changed since those days, so uh, there would have been a lot of conversations, and there would have been a lot of uh, a lot of relationship building between Oleg and uh, Igor as men and as father and son, but their relationship also in their in their nature has changed because uh, Igor doesn 't look at Oleg as his little boy doesn't know, you know anymore uh, he recognizes what Oleg has done, he recognizes uh, what Oleg is doing and what he wants to do and how he operates as a man. He's not a sort of a, a kid in his 20s anymore because, you know, once a kid, always a kid. No, that kid has already gone through his own war and conquered his own demons and proved himself. So as a man, Igor definitely sees that.
0: Before we sign off this week, let's hear from spycraft expert H. Keith Melton who advises the Jays about intelligence gathering techniques and technology and supplies many of the show's spy gadgets from his personal collection. At the beginning of season six, we jumped from 1984 to 1987, and I wondered, did spy tech evolve much in that three-year period?
4: Well, it did, but perhaps in ways that aren't as evident. Keep in mind that the functions and the basic objectives of espionage have never changed. We want to discover other people's secrets. We want to be able to communicate secretly ourselves, and we want to find people who were out to spy on us. Technology, however, gives us new skills along the way. What happened in the mid-'80s, and we certainly reflected it as the show went, was that we began to see, in 1984, the the birth of the first personal computer with, with IBM, and we began to see data being put on networks where it began to be shared widely and more usable. And as we go into the season, we see now that the counterintelligence officers begin to have the ability to search databases far more effectively and efficiently they could when they were just searching manual index cards.
0: That's not necessarily super televisual though. Are there any things that are kind of, oh look at that cool piece of tech that may be more outstanding or easier to kind of glom onto?
4: In the 80s, the basic functioning, especially of KGB equipment, and please keep in mind that in the KGB, the idea of old was never an issue as long as it served the intended purpose. So it was never uncommon to see crafty, well-designed KGB pieces remaining in use far longer than CIA or FBI. Uh, especially CIA. CIA is something that's two years old, is antiquated. And in, in the KGB, their basic functional surveillance camera called the Ajax or the, the F-21 was finalized in 1952 and was used in the service up through the 80s. So the, for them, functional, well understood, trained, know how to use it, have film, That's always better than something's new and great, but we may not know how to use it and the batteries may be dead. It was a completely different approach.
0: In the season opener, we see Marilyn and Elizabeth in whatever disguises and and identities they're using at the time, following people, and because they've got recorders and microphones in their purses, in their pocketbooks, they're able to kind of keep track or hear or record somebody who's actually on the move. Now, that feels different. That feels like something we've not seen before. Was that indeed something new in 1987?
4: It was. That's something that that we we worked quite a while on. Hmm. And one of the difficult challenges you have is how do you record something from someone on the street with ambient street noise and wind noise? And, you know, the, the question was, well, could you sit in a hotel a block away and do it? And the answer is no, you you can't. uh, The wind would destroy any type of directional microphone. You couldn't realistically even doing it from a car driving by because Mm -hmm. the, the cone at which you would be within range would be so brief. So we came up with the idea in the 80s. The KGB was developing and was purchasing from Taiwan a new type of flat directional microphone in which you could mount a series of basically microphones in an array on a flat piece of circuit board. And actually, they would be very pointable. And this was the idea to place it in either a lady's bag or a briefcase in a way that as you carry it, you can naturally point it to the target. And that was something that was very realistic. The challenge is... It's very hard to tell whenever you'd get that exact clip of information that you want. So in the real world, for example, there may be a team of people doing that. Later in a laboratory, you try to piece together all the bits and recover usable conversation. In the 1980s, that was about as good as we could do. These days, there's other techniques that may make it a bit easier with lasers, but those wouldn't have been available in the time period we were working.
0: And it's not simply that Marilyn or whoever is, you know, walking, pointing her pocketbook at the person they're trying to monitor. It's also that Elizabeth is hearing it in yet another place. I presume it's much too early for Wi-Fi, but how would that specific connection be made there?
4: In any covert communication systems, you have your microphone Mm -hmm. that's picking up the sound and you may go into an amplifier to amplify the circuit. But you either have to record it at that point or transmit it to a listening post nearby Uh where you then can overhear it at the same time you're recording it. And a person could do either. The challenge is that you're always worried about you have to remain in range. So Mm -hmm. you need to remain in kind of the proximity of this. And when you're following people, for example, think of the difficulty. You don't know which way they're going. Right. And you don't know where you're going to be recording the bit of conversation that you need. So in the show, we made an assumption that they were remaining in a vicinity that were able to get a nice signal up to a listening post. And that's where Elizabeth was.
0: Another thing I've always wondered about uh, listening devices in the show. So, for example, in the case of where Philip is running Kimmy, or he's not he's not actually running Kimmy, but he's using Kimmy, he's got a tape in her father's briefcase. One of the things I've always wondered about that is how can the recorder hold so much Material. I mean, I think back into the 80s and I think of like C60 cassettes, 30 minutes on each side. How could they possibly have recorded enough information to have been sitting in a briefcase for a matter of weeks between pickups?
4: The KGB, go, again, were, were masters. And one of the things that where they stuck with old technologies, the, the, the predecessor to the tape recording was a wire recording. And in the World War II period, people used thin wire, and they just were recording information on it. And it was non-stereo. What happened is when the West went to a tape in the 1950s, the KGB stuck with the wire.
2: Wow.
4: And by the 1980s, they could record up to 90 hours on a small spool of wire. And this was extraordinary. Uh, their, their favorite tape recorder, well, they used a couple. One called a Maison, and the other one was called Lilliput. It's possible to get exceptional recording because non-stereo and the fact that there's, no, of course, no video. So our idea of 30 minutes being a long time, uh, in the intelligence world, they dwarfed it. And the other thing that they had the ability to do is... You'd do a voice-actuated pickup. So you'd kill some of your dead time, even though you'd lose a quarter of a second on the pickup. You'd only start it and stop it when there's a noise to record. So you gave you a functional life a lot longer than 90 hours.
0: Right. Once you've picked up the wire or you've picked up the Lilliput, do you need another Lilliput to listen to it?
4: It's It's an interesting point on... KGB and East European recorders, especially in the Cold War, they never believed that an agent ever had a need to listen to anything they recorded. So, to give an idea, in the West, we think of a tape recorder as being both play or record. Well, in the Soviet Union, they only recorded, so they didn't have a second head to play, And it it was easier to manufacture, it took less electricity, because they felt that once it's recorded, then that becomes a secret, and the agent shouldn't have access to it. And so they would have to take the contents on the wire, and they put it on a larger machine to play. We see
0: Elizabeth receive a very special necklace. Is that necklace based on a real item?
4: The idea is that if you have an agent that wants to take their own life, how would you conceal a poison? And in the real intelligence world, you do have agents that choose to die rather than be interrogated. And during the Cold War, it was especially an issue in the West where we had recruited Soviet sources. They knew the option was so horrible if they were caught that they would just rather, rather die. But to issue what we call an L pill, a lethal pill, which could be—it could be cyanide. It could be some special formulas that the CIA developed. It, it required, for us, uh, in the West, it required the approval of the director of the intelligence service.
0: Wow.
4: One of the things we talked about in this is: did the KGB have the ability to do this? Absolutely. They had a poisons camera, a laboratory, mm. beginning in the 30s. That. They put far more work into poisons than the West ever did. So they certainly had the ability to it. It would be my feeling that in the real world, it's very unlikely that an illegal would ever commit suicide.
0: Thanks to Joe Weisberg, Joel Fields, Costa Ronin, and H. Keith Melton for talking episode 604 with me. Thanks also to Daniel Schroeder for recording assistance and to the Americans Sarah Nolan for organizational help. Please join us next week when we'll be discussing episode 605, The Great Patriotic War, with some very special guests. I'm June Thomas. Thank you for listening.